Good morning to you all. We're returning to our series on 1 Peter, and we're in chapter 4, uh, verses 12 through 19 is what we'll be looking at this morning. And you're going to notice again, as soon as we start reading this, that, uh, that Peter is really rounding out an excursus that he's done on, uh, on Christian suffering. And it's really been a continuous theme since chapter 1. Uh, he's, he has mentioned it several times. In some of our passages, it's been more prominent than in others. It's been really prominent uh, this week, last week, the week before that. Uh, and you might ask the question, uh, and it would be f- a fair question to ask, why, why is Peter spending so much ink on this topic? Uh, well, one reason is given to us just in the context of the letter that, that Peter is writing to, and we've mentioned several times that Peter is writing to people who have suffered for their faith in Jesus Christ, who, who will continue to suffer for their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, but there really is another reason that's embedded deep in Peter's heart. Uh, a friend of mine said this. He said, when it comes to Peter's, uh, when it comes to suffering, Peter is not a theorist, but that he's a practitioner. And you might actually remember there was a time when, uh, when the idea of suffering was, it was something that Peter just couldn't stomach. He could not stomach the idea of Jesus suffering. In fact, Jesus made this ominous prediction that he was going to Jerusalem and that he would suffer and die at the hands of the chief priests. And, uh, and, and that was the moment. Peter was the only person who ever did this. It pulled, he actually pulled Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. And so now, decades later, when we read these words that he puts together on this whole topic, what we're seeing is that something has shifted in Peter's heart. Where the, the whole idea of Christian suffering has moved from something to be avoided at all costs and minimized wherever you can to something that lies very much at the heart of what we believe and it's worthy of our deepest considerations. And for that, we certainly need God's help, both in looking to his word for his guidance and I'll pray to him and ask him for help and for courage as, as we look into this passage. Let's look together. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Please hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not be, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. And if the righteous are scarcely saved, scarcely saved means uh, saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. 
Father, we are thankful for your word that that teaches us who you are. Uh, Jesus, we are thankful for you who came to be with us, to suffer, to die, and to promise us life in you. Help us to follow you, our King. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take these words and that you would speak to our hearts in ways that we need to hear. And that you would give my own voice courage and help as I speak to your to your people. Help me to love these friends well and to honor you with the things that I say, with the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts. Be good and right before you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the past few few weeks, maybe a month or so, let me just share a memory with you that as I've been studying this text and speaking to you about it, there's been a recurring memory that I've had that's kind of come back to me over and over again. And I'll share it with you. It was from when I was in seminary. And, uh, and boy, when we were in seminary, I mean, we were so naive. <laughs> we were so naive. Uh, we had really had no idea what the life was that we were training for and heading into. Uh, what, we, what we lacked in competence, we made up more than made up for in confidence. And, so, um, and, and there was this memory that I have about how we were standing outside a chapel service. So it was twice a week we had a chapel service, and I was circled up with a few other friends, all students there. And uh, we were talking about, believe it or not, we were talking about professors that we really admired. And it really, and, and as my memory goes, it had less to do with their teaching abilities or their communication abilities. It really had to do with the character that we saw in many of them, that these were men and women who were seasoned with grace and, uh, and that were exceedingly patient and generous and helpful Uh, we were noticing a consistent character across our professors. And uh, and at one point, one of those professors actually walked into our circle and asked us what we were talking about. And as we relayed to him the conversation, I I remember he just kind of crossed his arms and he looked down and uh, he just nodded his head. And then he said... It seems to me like you are talking about the kind of pastors you want to be. And that's good. But the question is, are you willing to suffer the way they have in order to become what they are? And I'll tell you, I, I don't remember anything that ha- like the memory stops after that. I don't know if we all just kind of shuffled into the chapel service or if somebody said something. I just don't remember. All I remember was that, that when he said that to us, that was the cause for a lot of sober reflection. Because one of the things he was telling us is that suffering is going to be a part of this life that we're heading into. It's un- unavoidable. But the other thing that he was telling us was that it, it, it is something that God uses in some way to form us as his people. And when we look at Peter, this, this passage that he gives us, one of the things he's doing is he's offering us sober reflections that he has as one who has wrestled deeply with this topic, as one who has suffered himself and, and, will, cont- and will continue to suffer more, and as one who watched his own Lord and King suffer. And he's speaking to us about how to understand it 
And he's speaking to us about how we endure it. Understanding and enduring. Let's start with understanding. Um, for this point, really, I'm just focusing in on this verse 12 that, that, uh, that we began with. And before I read it, let me just call your attention to that first word that he uses, where he calls each of you, he calls each of you his beloved or God's beloved. And he's done this before several times in the letter. He, he has led off with calling uh, God's people uh, <laughs> beloved. And he's reminding you of something that's really important for us to understand before he gives us a hard truth. He's not buttering us up. This isn't a bless your heart moment, okay? What he's doing is he's actually saying, you, this is the truest thing about you. You are deeply loved. And that has to shape everything else, that fo- how we understand everything else that follows. And so he goes on to say, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. That would be painful trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So what he's doing is he's normalizing suffering for us. He's telling, he's saying, beloved, suffering is a normal thing. It's not strange, and it comes to us from many different directions and for many different reasons. And the Bible really offers us several categories through which we're to understand suffering. Um, uh, Sometimes we suffer because we're in conflict with the world around us, that God in this age of redemption that we live in, that God is on mission to reclaim his world, and he's working out his redemption. And some of that involves conflict. And because we belong to him by faith, we are drafted into God's mission, and some of that will involve conflict. Uh, Sometimes we suffer because of uh, the sins of others around us. Sometimes it has uh, actually nothing to do with us, but we're affected profoundly by it. And sometimes we suffer because there's sin in our own hearts that, that, uh, that, that, that where we bring suffering into our own life. Those are three big categories that Peter has been working with. There, there are all kinds of other reasons that might not be covered, but those are three big ones. And, and, and it seems to me that Peter has been wrestling with those first two categories most of the time. And in this passage, he'll begin wrestling with some of that third one later in the passage. We'll do more of that later. But, uh, but whatever way it comes to us, Peter is telling us that, that, that it's actually a part of life. He's normalizing it. And he's saying that we need to be prepared for it. And just as much as he's normalizing suffering, he's also telling us that it actually comes to us with a purpose. That it's not, it's not aimless. It's not purposeless. He says, it come, this is verse 12, he says, it comes upon you to test you. Now, usually when we think about tests, we're thinking about ways we assess competency, right? Uh, I was talking with one of the high school, high school students in our own church, and she was taking the ACT test and uh, preparing for that. And that's a, you know, that's a way of assessing competency that helps determine where we're going in our life. But the Bible, when the Bible uses this language test, it's actually talking about something very different. Um, it, the Bible talks about testing, it's talking about something that God does that actually strengthens us in faith. It strengthens us in our awareness of who he is and our love for him. Uh, here are just a couple of examples. I'll give you two. The first is in James chapter 1. He tells us that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. 
Uh, we can't talk about suffering without also talking about um, the story of Job in the Old Testament, of course. If anybody had reason to harbor incredulity at the suffering that he faced, it would be Job. And yet right in the middle of his story, he says that when God has tried or tested me, I shall come out as gold. And that's the idea that Peter's getting at in this passage, because uh, when he talks about a fiery trial, the Greek word for fiery trial or ordeal is actually the word purosis. It's the, it's the, uh, the, the same word we get the word p- to purify from. And uh, there's this theme that we see that God somehow uses testing to strengthen or purify our faith and our very own selves. And I'll just say that many of us have stories like this. That while we wouldn't wish this on anybody or even on ourselves, many of us have a story that says something like, we came to know God during a time of real difficulty that we wouldn't have, uh, that we wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, that's certainly what uh, Nicholas Waltersdorf has to say. If you're not familiar with his name, He's one of our more well-known Christian philosophers. He was a professor at Calvin, and then he retired while teaching at Yale University. Um, He's in his 90s now, but I think he's still alive. And he wrote a lot of books, like just dozens and dozens of books on Christian philosophy. Many of them are very hard to understand. But but probably his most precious book, and one I would recommend to you, is one that he wrote called Lament for a Son. And, uh, and it was in the aftermath as he was wrestling with all the grief and difficulty that came with the death of his 25-year-old son, Eric, who died in a, in a tragic mountain climbing accident. And this theme of growing in his love for the Lord and growing in his faith, that, that he, he came to know God's presence and his affections on him in ways that he didn't know otherwise is just all throughout that book that he wrote. And here's a quote. He said, I shall learn to look at the world through tears. Perhaps I shall see things that dry-eyed I will not see. And I think it's important for us to all collectively say we don't wish this. That our hope is for flourishing. And that's a good and unflinching hope. That's what we hope. Peter is trying to give us and understanding. When we understand the suffering that comes to us in many different ways, he's telling us that it's not strange, but it's actually a part of this life as we wait for the renewal of all things. And he's also telling us that it's not without purpose. And why is it important for us to hear this? Well, I think it's important for a number of reasons. But one of them, I think, is that it trains us in honesty about what we endure together. I don't think I'm alone in this. But there is an instinct whenever I suffer to want to hide. Like it's a failure on my part to control the world around me. It it exposes my incompetence, exposes me in ways I'm really uncomfortable. And then I want to hide it. It, it, Suffering is abnormal and, uh, and I want to hide it that no one will understand. I don't want to be a needy friend. Um, And if they do understand, it's going to make them not want to be around me. Um, But one of the things he's telling us is that if we know that suffering is a normal part of life, then we also know that it's not a cause for hiding. 
And it's no mistake that later on he's going to start dealing with shame directly. But listen, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we broadcast our pain over the airwaves. Um, I'm not saying we do need to be wise about how we steward our wounds. But there are ways that we actually contribute to our own harm just by being dishonest about our suffering. And, and listen, is there anything more helpful in the midst of difficulty than a good friend, a good trusted friend who draws near? Like somebody, somebody who comes not, not to problem solve or to fix, but somebody who's there to listen, to pray with you, that's committed to you. Someone who's willing to share in the heaviness of it. I would say that some of our most steady, lasting, rich friendships are actually forged through honesty about what we're going through together. And and I actually think that this is one of the things Peter has been driving at for this entire letter. That he is is saying, you're, you're in a state of suffering and you need each other. And so the unflinching in, in, uh, in moving toward, this, toward each other. He wrote this to a church of people who were suffering together. And so he goes on to give us several things that we need to say to each other as we enduring suffering together. How do we endure suffering? And that's the question, right? Like, how, how do we endure it? Like, how, how do we not be crushed by it? Is there a way through it? Um, Peter tells us that it's actually in suffering when we learn more about the the joy that we have as Christians and we're reminded of just who we trust. And when we think about joy, what comes to mind? Usually joy is the long, for us, joy is usually the longing for something that we don't have, right? The joy, usually the way we understand joy is that it's the absence of, of suffering, but, but Peter's definition of joy is actually very different. He gives us a picture of joy despite suffering. He's actually giving us a picture of joy in the last place that we would look for it, in, in the place of suffering. Look at verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may be glad when his glory is revealed. He's telling us that our sufferings are themselves some evidence of our union with Christ. That we actually, in some mystery, as we suffer, we're actually sharing in Jesus Christ's sufferings. And then he also tells us that our sufferings are a time when God's approval is especially upon us. His smile is upon us. He is close to the brokenhearted, right? Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ... You are blessed because the spirit of the glory and of God rests upon you. There were many times uh, where Jesus is giving his disciples instructions as they go out into the world. And uh, he predicted persecution for them. And then he said, don't be afraid. Because my spirit will rest upon you when they haul you in to testify before tribunals and your life is at stake, you don't need to be afraid. The Holy Spirit himself will rest upon you and be very close to you and will actually give you words to stay. And then Peter goes on to speak directly to shame. He speaks directly against shame in verse 16. He says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. 
I think Flannery O'Connor's story is really helpful here. She was this, she was this phenomenally talented young uh, writer, Southern writer. She wrote fiction, lots of short stories. Some of you might have read them. Uh, Matt and I came to the realization earlier this week that while both of us like Flannery O'Connor's writings, uh, we have read them. Neither of us had any copies of anything she's written. Um, But for as remarkable as her writing was, she also led an incredibly remarkable life because she was somebody that, that also suffered profoundly. Her father was, uh, um, she lost her father to lupus when she was 16 years old. And uh, she herself was diagnosed with the same disease. She was diagnosed with lupus about 15 years later. I think that's right, 15 years later. And, uh, and lupus is this horrible, painful, chronic disease. And uh, this is the way her day looked like. She would, she would go to Mass every morning. She was a Catholic uh, Christian. And she would go to uh, Mass every morning. And then she would go home and she would write for the rest of the morning. And then the rest of her day was just spent recuperating from all that. It's really um, remarkable just to think about the volume of work that she produced um, when you consider what she was going through. But in addition to her fiction, she was also known for writing letters to friends and, uh, and other, um, other writers all over the country. And uh, in one of her letters to a friend, she said this. She said, Picture me with ground teeth stalking joy. Picture me with ground teeth, with determination, stalking joy. And what she was saying was really quite remarkable, that joy is something to be found right in the midst of what she was enduring. You might ask, how how could she say this? Well, I, I think she could say this because she was a Christian. And that her definition of joy doesn't come from what her life looks like or what her career looked like, or what her pain level was that day, she was telling us that her, her joy was defined by Jesus himself. And there's much we could say about this, but I'll, I'll just say that that's actually a more stable joy than any other joy we could find. Like, if so much of life is out of our control, and it's moving in ups and downs, there are things to enjoy and things to despair of, much of that is what we endure and we don't understand. But one thing the Bible is telling us is that the favor of Jesus upon his people is unchanging and constant. That it is never running out. And and this passage is telling us that his favor is especially known during hard times when it's easy to doubt it. Jesus was the one who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its what? Despising its shame. You know what the joy that was set before him was? Certainly the exaltation. As he goes back to be with his father and sits down at the father's right hand. But it was also you the assembly of God's people before him, the the beatific vision of his people all gathered together where there is only joy and no suffering, the picture of heaven itself 
is the joy set before him. You are the joy set before Jesus. And so Jesus is the joy that's set before us. And just as we find our joy in Jesus, we also find that our trust lies in exactly the same place. And it seems to me that Peter is always over and over and over again telling us like where, where our story is headed. Like we, every passage we are being reminded by Peter of, of this end that we're headed toward. And, uh, and, and here he does it again. Um, he, and and uh, it, he does it again by talking about there, the, a judgment that's coming. You might have noticed that in verse 17. Verse 17 can feel very jarring as you're coming through this. But he says there's a judgment that's coming to the household of God. And then there's a judgment coming for those who do not obey the gospel of God. So two different judgments. And it's beginning with the household of God and then for those who do not obey. And it's important that one of the things he's doing as we drift into that third category of suffering, one of the things he's doing is he's making a connection between our suffering and God's judgment. And that's, a, that's a, like a jarring shift. He hasn't talked like this yet up to this point. Peter has been talking about suffering, how we suffer at the hands of ungodly people. But here he, it appears that at least some of our suffering is a result of our own ungodly behavior. And this text says that he begins with us, but instead of judgment uh, that we deserve apart from Jesus, we are actually receiving discipline uh, so that we look more like Jesus. He is shaping us every day to look more and more like him. And a helpful image for this is given to us right there in the first verse where we talked about this fiery trial, that God is allowing us to pass through fiery trials like like metals are passed through a fire. Um, the fire is not meant to destroy, but it's meant to purify. I heard a story about this from a pastor, and, uh, and this pastor heard it from another pastor, and uh, I think that pastor probably heard it. So it's like passed through the grapevine. I don't actually know how accurate all of this is, but it's a, it's a good story, so I'm going to give it to you. But this is what he said. This pastor said he had a friend who was a silversmith. And, uh, and he asked the silversmith, how do you know that you've put the silver through the fire enough? How do you know that as you pass it through and pass it through, how do you know that it's become pure? And the silversmith said back to him, I know because I look into it. And when I can see my own face in it, then I know it's pure. And of course, the the pastor thought about this and said, you know, that's what Jesus does for us, that he puts us through the fire and he puts us through the fire and he puts us through the fire until he can see his own image in us. Spurgeon said something similar. Pastor Spurgeon said, "Um, I have learned to, to kiss the wave. What did he say? I've learned to kiss the wave that strikes me against the rock of ages. I'll just admit to you that I don't know that I've learned that yet. I think we're all learning to learn that. But this is what Peter is talking about here. And one of the reasons I think it's most important to us is it's telling us that our suffering is not chaos. That there is a God who oversees our lives. Nothing is outside of his eyes. That that he is exacting a purpose to make us more like him. 
And in verse 19, Peter is saying, let there, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So whether we're suffering for doing good or for our own sin, we are told that we can entrust our souls to God. They're very precious to him. Let me close this way. You've noticed that we use um, various confessions and creeds in our service. That's our confession of faith. And we're rotating through a number of our favorites. And they're great distillations of what we believe. And they can be an incredible encouragement to us. Especially, like they're good to memorize because they lock into our head. Especially during hard times. They are speaking to us about who God is. And ways that we need to hear. And if um, if you force me to choose my favorite... Uh, that would be hard, but I would say my, my favorite is the Heidelberg Catechism just because this language is so pastoral and loving and helpful. And Heidelberg number 79 asks a question about one of the ways we're to understand this meal that we're about to take together. And it asks why we call this meal of participation in the body and blood of Jesus. Earlier we talked about sharing in Christ's suffering. How do we understand this meal is actually a participation? And it says this, that Jesus assures by this visible sign and pledge, the Lord's Supper, that through the working of the Holy Spirit, we share in his true body and blood as surely as we receive this meal. And second, that all of Jesus' sufferings and obedience are as certainly ours as if we had personally suffered and paid for our sin. Look, I I don't know what this is going to look like when we all stand before the Father. But one of the promises we have is that when, when we come face to face with him and he looks at us, the Bible is telling us is that what he will see is not somebody who suffered poorly or suffered well. And he won't be comparing us with each other. What he will see is a faithful daughter or a faithful son who suffered perfectly, just as Jesus did. And then he will say to you, enter into the joy of your king. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, be near us. Be our helper. Speak truth to our own hearts. Uh, Lord, help us in our joy and help us in our pain. Be very near to us. And whatever comfort and peace looks like in these moments, I pray you would be very generous to us. But help us to understand your smile and your favor. Would you give us that? Thank you for your word that speaks to us in times of good and in times of difficulty. Will you please write these things into our hearts, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.